The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Blue go live button is blue, so I'm going to click that. Click, and it's taking us, and we're live. Hello, everyone. Today is Thursday, August 19th, 2021, and we are joined with the wonderful Tim Miller. Hello, everyone. I am, I'm really happy to be with you, though I'm missing the wonderful Kate Klonick. What is the deal with this? I mean, we have the same haircut right now. It's going to be a nice, a nice, like, kind of bed shirt. My, my bed shirt? I, I, sw I swear to God, I put on a new t-shirt for this show, for this episode, because I wanted, I wanted to make a good first impression. They're coming like a Hanes, one of those Hanes three-in-one packets, like three shirts in one. No, that was the one I changed from. This is actually um, not a Hanes shirt. This is like a higher quality. It has a, like at least 50% greater thread count. So God, okay. okay, okay. So God, Let's do wow, we're really, we're really it's off fruit of the loom. You were really off to a bad start here. Um, okay, um, what are we talking about? I uh, want to start, uh, Tim, with the, you know, I, I feel like the last time we talked, we were all rah-rah for like face-licking parties and uh, 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 exactly. How are you feeling? How grouchy are you well, at this point? I gotta tell you, I'm a little grouchy. We we downgraded Hot Joe Summer to Hot Joe July. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and so it was it was I, good. I, I did, although I'm. It's August now, and I am at a beautiful undisclosed location, uh, and I'm feeling the Hot Joe Summer around uh, vaccinated Midwesterners, um, and probably a few sleazeball unvaccinated midwesterners um but i'm i'm actually still feeling a little bit of the hot joe summer thing well i'm losing i think that the best um little anecdote i can give you i won't share the name but a friend of mine i just saw did a very lengthy twitter thread about how he had a breakthrough infection that wasn't great and he blames himself because he went to three fish shows a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and he was like, maybe just the one fish show was would have been right. <laughs> three, three was maybe a little dicey. So I, yeah, I do feel like we've, we've, we, um, we're backsliding. Uh, I'm going to have to wear, at the best case scenario, is at the LSU opener in UCLA, I'll be in a mask. Um, my friend who is an infectious disease doctor in New Orleans, life is miserable again. Um, and so I'm obviously extremely unhappy with a number of red state governors in particular. And, um, and, and the whole thing kind of sucks, doesn't it? It just sucks. Absolutely. Uh, because at this point it feels like it's totally preventable. I, but I, so I'm going to be, I, I, so obviously the, 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 um, the fact that so many unvaccinated people uh, for various reasons, are in hospitals and dying. This is terrible, but I I feel like I, I just I almost wanted to get COVID just to get it over with because we're all gonna get it um, at some point. There's just no way of avoiding. So okay, let's let's talk about this. Okay. Why, why is, is this a, is this, you, is this you, a you don't want it? No, 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 no. It's not a shtick. So like there was that's a bad that's a bad take, Scott. <laughs> Okay, so here are my problems I'm, I'm with not, this. I'm, first of all, so so let me let me make my let, let me state my case, okay? So like um, it's endemic. There's no way we're going to get rid of COVID nineteen. I'm I'm vaccinated, double vax, so it's highly unlikely that I'll be in the hospital. Um, um, and you know. Um, it's, I, I'm not particularly afraid of getting the flu. Um, why should I be afraid of getting COVID? 
I think that's a different sentence than your first sentence, which is that you were hoping to get it to get it over with, which I, which I don't think I, is I working. The natural immunity is not lasting permanently. People are getting second infections, right? So yeah, I know, but they're not. But that's, that's the thing is, I'm not sure you're ever going to not get um, COVID because, like, no, you're, no, you're it, never going to be. Go ahead, no. Ben. No, no, no. I don't want you propagating COVID disinformation on in lieu of fun, Scott. Um, first of all, first you, of all, I said almost. I almost wanted. It's like I'm just yeah, but, it. but no, no, no. But secondly, you you're gonna you're gonna cause a HIPAA violation here, man. Um, that's actually you're gonna, that's a good point. I'm willing to volunteer a HIPAA <laughs> violation at this point because I feel like I I have some personal knowledge. So last March, I did catch it because one of my family members works in a hospital. And it's, that's a very different animal, as opposed to what's circulating now. And even that was miserable. And I'm young, I'm in good health. It's not 2021 March, obviously 2020 March, and now I'm vaccinated. And I'm doing what I can to avoid it. Because there are symptoms that just stay with you and they don't know anything about it or why and who that's going to stay with. Like some people still haven't regained their taste or smell, which could really impede cheese night, Scott. No, no I, believe me, that's the first thing on my mind, um, um, uh, how to fuck a cheese night. But the, I, I would just say that um, uh, I don't know of any, inst I have not read any uh, stories about people who've been double vaxxed who have, who have long COVID, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, I, I just, I guess I'm not afraid of getting COVID. I, I was never afraid of getting COVID. I was always afraid of, you know, going to the hospital or dying or something like that. And since the, since it's extraordinarily unlikely, I like, so it, So I get, so it's like getting the flu. Um, I, I, you know, well, so anyway. So I wanna argue against your position um, first of all, it, the, the element of what you're saying that I agree with is COVID exposure. There is zero chance that any of us is going to not have exposure to the antibodies. We're either going to get it because we're going to get vaccinated or we're going to get it because we're going to get exposed to the virus. One of those two things is going to happen over the next four months or so. Um, it is also the case that at least as the vaccines are currently uh, constituted, we will always have some degree of exposure to getting somewhat sick. And so any amount of vaccination you get will not be 100% effective. That does not mean it is desirable to be exposed to the virus um, because A, you can transfer Transmit it, and B, uh, the range of possible sicknesses that you can have with it range from something very anodyne to something like what Christopher Argerus in the Greek chorus had, which was a breakthrough infection that was not anodyne at all. And while that is also true of the flu, the uh, uh, that's a good reason not to get flu as well which can be uh, very unpleasant. Um, and so I would say, don't, Scott, go out looking for COVID. I don't, I don't, Bad idea. Uh, COVID and, yeah, I, so, I, I would just, I would just simply say that we don't, uh, you know, I, so I, I'm just, I'm expressing a view, which obviously might be wrong. So I'm not like, so I'm just, you know, airing a view that I am not committed to. Um, but I'm not sure that we really apply the same standards to everything. Like people, like I, most people I know don't wear seatbelts when they're in taxis. Um, there, there are lots of, um, uh, I mean, most people drive, which is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, it's much, it's much, it's much safer to live in a city. Um, and the question is whether we're too um, uh, concerned about. Um, so I know a lot, a lot of people in the course are saying we don't have data, we don't have, we don't know, we don't know. It's true, we don't know. Um, the question is whether 
that is a standard that we apply to other risks that we have in, in our lives. So can, can I, I just ask, oh, I'm sorry, Tim. No, please. Uh, is this more just saying that your risk assessment has shifted since being double vaccinated? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. That's all. That's yeah. all it's to say. I mean, it has nothing. I, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I would, I would never say this if not only me, but everyone I, I know has, you know, or I interact with, um, has been double vaccinated as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I, so here's the part that I do agree with Scott on is I, I think that there needs to be some risk assessment shift in like understanding of, okay, well, for the, for, for the double vaccinated, you know, I, I, there's, uh, there's, there's, I think that in a certain, certain segment arguing for overcompensating. I mean, there was a New York Times poll that was going around yesterday that was like, you know, even 14% of epidemiologists still don't get their own mail without taking precautions. And I was like, <laughs> how do these people live? You know, it's like, it was like a quarter of them wouldn't go to an outdoor park, you know, with their friends for a small gathering. And I was, you know, and it's like, I mean, you're I mean, never going to... Look, I grew, I, grew up, I grew up in a community of epidemiologists. It's a self-selected sample. <laughs> I mean, this is a... This is a this is a disease that you have that's different. This is like a mental health disease. If you're if you're still like wiping down your mail um, a year and a half later, but um, I, I will say this: the part of you, the part of your point that I disagree with, and, and I don't want to lump you in here with the worst actors, but I, I wrote today uh, for the Bulwark if you guys missed it about the herd immunity crowd, and and like that part of the natural herd immunity crowd, not the vaccine herd immunity, but the natural herd immunity crowd have been the wrongest people of the entire pandemic. And when you say something that like makes me think, that kind of sounds like what those guys were saying, you know, like we, we just need to absolutely reject this notion. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and there were just so many of these assholes that were saying we should do what Sweden was doing last year. And, you know, and they're still saying it in the context of, of people who are unvaccinated, but who had gotten contracted the virus. So you don't need to get vaccinated now. We're getting to hurt once you, once you've got it, you're contributing to our herd immunity. And it's like, we're coming up on 650,000 deaths here. And like these, these like sociopaths are still calling for herd immunity. Um, and, and so like that is obviously a completely mistaken thing and you can, everyone yeah, can enjoy, I'm not saying Scott did this, everyone can enjoy the worst hits. I was doing tomahawk dunks on every, on all of the federalist losers who are pushing this, um, you know, chicken pox party plan. Um, but, but I will say, yeah, I mean, don't I, you know, that, I just want to just identify, the, I just want to just say that, me crowd is the modern social Darwinism. <laughs> Scott, you, you wanted to clarify that you were not like Ben Donovich, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I identify. I, I I agree with what you said about that. That I feel like things go too far, and I'm not a herd immunity person at all. I was just talking about my own psyche um, yeah. in terms of yeah. So so um, I, I I I wasn't making a crazy. I wasn't making that crazy claim. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. I well, mean, look, and I, I'm very much, like, I'm frustrated with it. I mean, I think that Nate Silver did a good job with this, like, there are the groups, you know, breaking down how people are dealing with this right now. And it's like, there what is the social Darwinist group has been laid out that's just like, let's see who survives the plague. Um, and then I think that there are a group of, like, insane hypochondriacs. And then I think, like, the two groups that I, I think are most of the people that I interact with are, are, you know, essentially, I'm still maintaining some pretty serious precautions despite being vaxxed, and people who are like, "I am double vaxxed and I'm over the, I'm over the, I'm over the pandemic," and so I'm, I, I'm not gonna like, I, I won't be rude, I won't be an asshole, but I'm not gonna like go out of my way to, to do that. And, and I think that I, I think that both of those are reasonable categories given where we're at. Um, neither of them. And really where do you put yourself in that? It depends on the day. I'm a I'm, I'm a two and a three sometimes, depending on you know the, the the you know what how recently I talked to my doctor friends. To be honest, um, I very much I'm very much over it. Like I think my natural inclination is to be a three that is, that says I'm over this pandemic. I've been double vaccinated. I'm going to live my life you know with reasonable precautions like wearing a mask you know, on an airplane or whatever. Um, that said, you know I've got a three year old. And so, you know, I, I, I don't really fear for her life or whatever. Obviously, there's been pretty, very few 
three-year-olds that have, you know, had extremely serious, you know, COVID issues. As to Scott's point earlier, more have died in a lot of other ways. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I kind of, I, I occasionally veer back into like, okay, it's getting pretty bad right now. We need to be a little more careful. How about you, well, Genevieve? Um, well, my situation's a little unique, so I'm being a little bit more cautious. Um, just, I like, I wear a mask. I, I figure I'm double vaccinated, but it can't hurt to wear a mask, so I'm doing so. Um, I, I read a lot about like just the infection rates and things like that. And it seems to be, it's not good, but it also isn't being in New York city. It's, it's since there's such a highly vaccinated population, it's not the same as being in like Louisiana or a state that has like a very low vaccination rate. So, I mean, I do want to carry on with my life, but I'll just take extra precautions. Yeah. I, I, I would also say that like, we're also, in slightly different situations that like, if you have young kids, um, that's also a different um, uh, thing. If you if you live with unvaccinated adult uh, um, persons, um, I, one would, I think, have a very different attitude towards yeah. it. Um, I, I just wanna just clarify that I was just talking about myself and my own fears um, and that there's a way in which like, so I, I went to Barnes and Nobles the, a couple of days ago and I felt uncomfortable being in Barnes and Nobles, despite the fact that like, I was like one of three people on one of the floors. And I just thought to myself- It's cause like, it's a lousy yeah. bookstore though. No, well, well actually, <laughs> I mean, you know, now in order to sit at the cafe, they don't let you sit on the floor anymore. And to sit at the cafe, you have to show your vaccine card, at least in New York city. Um, and now, um, you know, to go to the gym, do you have to show your vaccine uh, card to go to restaurants by uh, in New York City by September seventh? You have to you have to get, um, show your vaccine card or an Excelsior pass. Yeah. So things are actually really um, clamping down. Um, and I have to say that makes me. And this is like the reverse of what I was saying. It makes me feel comfortable knowing that only vaccine vaccinated people are in the space that I'm in. But I also just feel um, uh, like I just kind of almost want the monkey off my back. Like I got it. Okay, I'm over. I don't have to worry about it anymore. So that's what I was referring to. I, um, you know, I was with you on the personal, I trust me, I get the personal frustrations. I mean, when you move to the policy part of it and the politics part of it, I mean, this is where I like I wrote about this on Monday. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I'm, I'm enraged by the, the slowness with which we've moved to some of these vaccine mandates, particularly in private, you know, private outlets and particularly at schools and, and, and you know, places where government can have, can be in charge. And, and obviously the red state, like the DeSantis and Abbots of the world are just acting unconscionably. I think that the Democrats are, are too cautious on this to, to, to push for the vaccine incentives and mandates as well. And I think this is a winning issue for them politically. It's obviously the right thing to do for a public health perspective. And slowly, you know, some of these states are coming around. But like that is another frustrating element of this to me, which is like, like it's, you know, the, the coddling of the unvaccinated. Um, um, I'm well past, and I think that that it's that this is a rare time where a culture war, culture war, if you want to call it that, issue like benefits the Democrats, uh, and they should they should fight it. What do you think engenders that fear, though? Just I think that the Democrats so, are. Tim, I'm wondering if you listened clear? to my debate with Liz Wheeler on this point and what you made of it. Um, I only saw your Twitter exchange. I'm sorry. I, to, to, asking me to have to listen to Liz Wheeler for that long was too, it's too big of an ask. Um, I mean, I guess maybe if you were paying me a stipend or something, I would do it. Um, so what was, what was her, uh, what was, what was the TLDR of her take? No, you're not there. Yeah. I mean, she was, uh, honest. She, I'm, I'm, to turn my video off so that I reserve bandwidth. Um, she was uh, uh, really taking the my liberties uh, position. She didn't want to say, I don't want to be vaxxed, but the uh, I, I did come away from my conversation with her 
uh, really quite convinced that this was a winning political issue because I thought she sounded, frankly, like a crazy person. Yeah. I yeah, it isn't. Yeah, it is a winning political issue for the Democrats. I, I don't. Her position is only held by about half of Republicans. I, I mean, look, vaccine. I, I guess even as a as a former Republican and with libertarian impulses, like the idea of the government making a mandate vaccine for everybody, like gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. But like the private sector, you know, doing it for certain government employees, these are popular positions. I mean, 70% of the country is vaccinated, right? So people are speaking with their arms already. And so, and like, if you look at the polls, it, it breaks down about 50-50. People are used to this. You have to get vaccinated to go to school, right? Like, that's what, this is like this new, like, fake culture war that got created by the right. And, and you know, I, like, in politics, part of the job is to wedge the other side, right? Like, of all the Trump's the terrible things he did well, what did he do well? He wedged the, de the Democrats' union you know, blue collar, culturally conservative union voters against them, right? Like you can, there still are, you know, suburban Republicans left that can be wedged against the crazy Republicans if, if you know, their kids' health is at stake. And I think that the Democrats need to, are, they're doing it a little bit. I think they can be much more aggressive. I think that they're triggered a little bit and have PTSD by having lost so many of these culture war fights um, uh, recently. You know, around police. So, what, if, all, what all is a more stuff. aggressive policy? What, like, what would a more aggressive posture on this look like? I mean, Gavin just did an answer. I think Gavin Newsom, who who I think is being pressured to be a little more aggressive on this because he's in this recall. You know, he he's launched an ad I think last week about how he's mandating all teachers get vaccinated and it's for your kids' health, right? Like that, like that's a simple thing, right? But like, why why wouldn't you do that? Right? I mean, that's going to be, you know, that, um, that that seems like a reasonable position. And it's, you know, it's a little bit performative to be like, I care about your children's health to do this. But, you know, that's what the Republicans do well. I mean, I, I think obviously, you know, attacking any Republicans that are standing in the way of private sector mandates with ad, like the cruise line ban, you know, for example, is ridiculous what the Santos is doing with Abbott and other states um, that they're banning uh venues and, and municipalities from putting in mandates. So I think you go uh, attack them. And then I, I just think to the extent that you have control over public sector employees, I, they should have vaccine mandates. I don't see like Fox News has a vaccine mandate. Why shouldn't public sector employees have vaccine mandates? Right? And I, that's just a winning political issue. And it's good for public health. So I would do all of that and be more aggressive in the attacking. Like Biden has done, a, Biden's been a little bit on this. Sometimes so he, he, they pick weird battles, like the masking, like with the kids. It's just I don't. It's I think less of a clear winner. It's a winner, but like uh, it gets people. You know, I, I just think that the vaccine is a clear winner. Do you think that they'll be emboldened once the vaccine is fully um, approved? I mean, one of the things that I've said before on the show, and it really frustrates me, is that this emergency use authorization is this is equivalent to what is going on with the treatments for COVID. So like you have your monoclonal antibodies. Those are also emergency use authorizations, but you don't see the level of anger or aggression directed at those that you do for the preventative care that the vaccine provides. Yeah. Well, that's because it has nothing to do with the actual <laughs> medicine of it. But yeah, I, I, well, I think that the, I don't, like this is not, this is outside of my expertise, but I've listened to a number of, you know, public health experts uh, who are just gobsmacked by the FDA. Like, I, I don't understand what, what that, so maybe it will help Democratic politicians feel more emboldened once the FDA does the right thing, but it's like, tick tock. Can, can, can I, can I just pivot a bit to because uh, uh, to the question of Afghanistan and can is there a wedge there in the sense that so I I, I, I it feels like the Republicans can't decide whether they want to argue that Biden didn't get enough Republican uh, um, refugees out versus it, the sending all these refugees to the United States and therefore and, and all the imagined problems that that would create. Um, is there, um, first of all, do you think that that, that um, this is going to hurt Biden in the long run? Um, or is it like when it comes to foreign policy, it, you know, this is not a bread and butter thing that 
voters particularly will vote on. And But number two, whether Democrats can turn and say, these are people who we relied on that worked with us. Um, we have an obligation to, to rescue them or to give them safe haven. Unfortunately, I don't think refugees are a winning issue um, for Democrats at all. I, I, I wish it was. It's an issue I'm passionate about. Uh, I, I, my first answer on the politics of this is to, to our, for our, you know, rest, rest in peace, Donald Rumsfeld. Our big known unknown on this is like, what happens the next three weeks, right? Like, if they're American deaths, uh, you know, I mean, like Biden is in a very, very rocky situation right now. And I like, I, I, I hear from a lot of Democrats and, you know, Biden sympathizers who, who like, kind of have been wagging their finger at me for like, and others at the bulwark for like raising the red flag about this. And, and you know, they're like, things seem to be going well now. It's like, this is an extremely dicey situation that they're in right now. Um, and so, you know, hostages, like who the hell knows, right? Like there are just a lot of contingencies. So like when you ask like, what's the political round, can the Democrats use this? Like if they get the hell out of there without, you know, without you know, being having the Iran hostage crisis leading the news for, you know, two months. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that the wedge is probably different though than what you're saying. I, I think it's, you know, with getting back into working class, communities um uh even you know there was some some bleed among black and hispanic communities for biden this last time um obviously working class whites are trending the wrong way um the, the war was not popular in those communities obviously they were disproportionately serving right and so like being the one who got out and like kind of being able to bang the drum and bang his chest on that i think could potentially help in those groups like trump won a lot of those folks over with, you know, a lot of talk around that, but he didn't actually do anything, um, except cut the terrible deal with the Taliban. So I think maybe, but I don't know. Honestly, I think I think the bad news on this one for Biden is the best case scenario is that he survives it and they get out of here without any any really hor more horrible images. And the worst case scenario is that like they get really derailed by this. Um, can, can I just say that like Winston Churchill or the, the British managed to make Dunkirk into, you know, sort of snatching jaw, a victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, but nobody plays for Dunkirk, right? Losing but getting your people out is not the play that you, uh, you know, is not what you play for. Um, and I think the best case scenario here for Dunk for for Biden is that he gets a kind of Dunkirk situation. We get, it's not, you know, it's it's our people and, and the Afghans, we get a lot of them out and we live to fight about refugee issues, um, but we don't have large scale killings of people who worked with us. And then he gets to argue, I'm the one who got us out and who got us out in a fashion that was responsible and protected our people. But we're a long way from that. And right now, what we're trying to prevent is the wholesale killing or oppression of people we worked with and us allowing it to happen. And I think it's a little too early to claim victory at most right now, we should be uh, thinking about grim determination. Yeah, victory. I mean, catastrophe is still a possibility. I, I don't, I just, I'm deeply concerned. And and I, I don't, I've seen you know, somebody in the chorus was like, this. Might, I don't think this matters at all in fall of 22. And like, that's probably right, right? Like that's probably right. But I, we just don't know. And, and, and I think that there's a humanitarian just catastrophe that is, happening regardless and and you know it's, it's only a matter of the scale of how of how bad it is and and whether that you know has a political impact i don't know but i mean like it's just it's impossible to imagine that we get all of the folks we want to out at um and so you know uh, uh that it's really it's uh you know it's been really kind of disappointing frankly i, I just don't know why there was not 
a plan B in place. You know, if it looks like plan A was you have to leave by August 31st, but we can't, but what happens if the city falls two weeks before that? You know, they showed this kid, Close Reward was interviewing this kid who looked 18 the other day on CNN, and he had his green card. He had a flight for today, a domestic flight to get here. And like, now he can't get to the airport. He can't, he can't, you know, like that's pretty, that's pretty fucking bad. And like, we're not gonna be able to get all these people sitting so I, I don't know. I, I think that there's catastrophe waiting to happen. The, the politics can wait. I, I will just one other thing on the politics, though, to your question about whether the Democrats came to get wedged. I think the people that are going to get wedged on this, sadly, are once again the, the you know remaining normal Republicans, right? Because I, I think that there's some Republicans who are way out over their skis of what their base wants. You know, talking about bring you know because they think it's owning Biden talk about bringing the Afghans back or maybe they truly believe it in their heart of hearts. I hope that they do. But, um, but that's not what the Republican base is going to want at all. And I think that that wedge you're talking about among the politicians just reflects that some of the politicians are out of step with what their voters want. Should, should we be concerned about, and perhaps this is too far ahead in time, but I mean, there does seem to be, and a uh, this was kind of stated beautifully the other day on the show, a uh, charm offensive by the Taliban speaking about like what they will do and like within the limits of their religion, um, allowing women to have rights and things like that. And the Security Council today said that that would be the only type of government that they'd work with and that the human rights violations they're seeing are causing a lot of red flags. But what I kind of worry about are should we be concerned about our strategic competitors, as President Biden put it, building relationships with that government, no matter what? Yeah, I, I'm not uh, impressed by the charm offensive of the Taliban. Uh, I'm not, it's not very charming. Uh, it's, and uh, I, I don't, uh, and, I, and I'm, it's like kind of crazy. I mean, it's really alarming. I like how many people have have gone have kind of bought into this like Taliban 2.0 sort of thing. Like it is, <laughs> there is no, it is 1.0. It is the year 450 AD Taliban, and they're they're there. And so I, I don't, I, I just I, I have no even I, I up hope. And and yeah, I, I think that the Chinese will work with them, right? It's their neighborhood, you know. So and the Russians, right? Why wouldn't they? Uh, the Chinese are also committing a, a genocide. So I don't, you know, I don't think that they, it's not like they're going to object on moral moral grounds. So I, I think that that's a legitimate concern, I, you know, I, and, and I, I don't know, you know, unfortunately, like just even the idea of America, like playing a geopolitical game in Asia, like we had the Asia pivot during the Obama administration, like that, that is gone. Right. There, there is no interest among the voters of either party to have a, a real American footprint over there. So I just, it seems to me like it's pretty inevitable that, that, that China and sphere of influence expands. There was an old, uh, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon, maybe one of the magazines, uh, newspapers from the 1980s. And it had, uh, it was quite racist, actually. It had in the first frame, uh, it was Iranian radical, and it was a picture of a crazed uh, mullah, you know, with a giant uh, scimitar like this. And then in the next frame, it was Iranian moderate, and it was exactly the same guy, only he was going like this. <laughs> And that's kind of the way I feel about this, you know, Taliban 2.0 thing. Um, you know, it's um, Taliban 1.0, Taliban 2.0. Um, but um, can, can, I, so can, can I ask? I don't know what the so I don't know what the rules and politics are, but like the fact that Trump. Um, spent four years, more than four years, he spent a lot of time talking about we have to get out of Afghanistan. And then you have Nikki Hale, then you have Trump signing this agreement with the Taliban. Um, does that matter? Like, is, is the, is the, is the, does and, that? And, and speaking of which, uh, did you see Mike Pompeo on, yeah, uh, on the, on the uh, Sunday talk shows and 
you know, is there any cost for behaving that way? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm always the rain cloud on, in low fun, so I'll just kind of bring the bring the thunderstorm. Um, no, there's no cost. I, look, I think the majority of the Republican, you know, base now in the Trump era has internalized that, like, the, the high, their highest and best purpose is humiliating the liberal elites, um, like all of you and me, also, I guess now. Um, like that is their that is their highest and best purpose. It does not matter. You know, whether a lot of them were pretending to be isolationists in the first place and they were just talks, right, who were faking it because that's what Trump said. And like now their mask can come back off and they can be like, look at how weak Joe Biden is. He couldn't even defend Taiwan. You know, and it's like it's like what Pompeo and Nikki Haley and all these folks are saying. It's like Trump was going to defend Taiwan. Trump was going to send our troops in. I find that very hard to believe that the MAGA crowd was calling for U.S. blood and treasure you know, to protect the democratic interests of Taiwan. I think that that ship has sailed. But that these guys, you know, they, they, they can do this now because there is no check on them, right? Like, there was a period of time where they would be humiliated by Tim Russert, and, like, that would have a negative impact on their standing, right? But now they can live in this, in this you know, hermetically cloistered media environment, where, where people don't even see that shit, right, that they're trying to get to, right? And so they don't care whether or not they're um, So I don't think, I think that the only sort of punishment, if you will, that you can, you can take some pleasure in when it comes to Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo is they're full of it and the magas smell it. So they're not going to suffer any punishment as far as their standing is concerned. They'll keep getting invited on the Sunday shows and, you know, they're not going to, you know, whatever. They'll be able to give speeches and all that sort of stuff. But um, but they're not, you know, going anywhere in Iowa. I'll tell you that much. Well, if Mike Pompeo wants to come on in lieu of fun and discuss his uh, mother's uh, fudge recipe with me uh, uh, anytime, man. But but the the thought, Tim, was not that you would convince the MAGA people, of course. Um, The question is, you know, the persuadables in the middle, um, even if they've been shrinking, the the thought that the Democrats are weak, the Democrats can't um, protect us. The fact that you had just like four years, four years of the other side saying exactly the same thing. Does does that not have an effect? I, I ask this because I, I this is not my area. Yeah, I just don't think so when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, like they might have, you know, again, I, I think that the images right now are bad for Biden. Can they can they make some progress and hurt Biden just on the topic of he's incompetent, he's weak, right? Like he's too old for the job. Like he's not up for this. I think potentially that that, that could be landing with some folks, um, you know, if, especially if this thing drags on and they, and, and, and just the perception is humiliating for America. It doesn't look good. Um, so just that general line of attack, I think despite the fact that Donald Trump was there, people have short memories. And, and I think that they could, I think that they could gain a little bit of purchase with that. And I think that you'll see Biden's numbers come down a little bit. Look, there's a lot of low info people who just kind of respond to the news environment right now. Things are good. They Biden's, say, I like Biden's it. numbers should come down over yeah. this. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at it in the best case scenario for Biden. Uh, assume he's completely right about the withdrawal. Uh, which I do not believe, by the way, but assume he is. Um, uh, It was handled in a way that left tens of thousands of people who he believes we should protect scrambling to get out of the country while the Taliban threatened to kill them. Um, That is not good leadership. It's not competent management of his own party. And a reasonable person sympathetic to his policy would quite reasonably look at it and say i expected more from him i have no i have no uh quarrel with a republican who says that i merely have a quarrel with the standing of certain republican leaders to raise the issue having advanced precisely the same policy themselves on an even shorter timetable I agree with that. And I just to make a pers- more precise answer to Scott's question, I, 
I, I, th I do think it will impact Biden's numbers. I think that there's a certain demo that, 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 you know, but Biden did win over former Republican voters. He did win over independent voters who are not going to be happy with this. And we hear the messages coming from the right and, and from some on the left criticizing him rightly. So I, th I think his numbers will go down. I, I do think to your point of like, do they not suffer anything? I, I, I think that some people aren't listening. Right, like there's this on both sides, right? There's this band of persuadables. It is very real and exists. And a lot of there was like some talk in 2020 that these people don't exist, and we shouldn't. And we're just all about turnout now. We shouldn't persuade people, and that was wrong. Biden won solely because of people who are persuadable. So those people can be persuaded back. But, but there is a band of people who I think fairly look at Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and anyone that was complicit in Trump's, you know, just disastrous you know, uh, presidency and say, I don't give a shit what you're saying, honestly. Like, I'm not, li like, I'm not listening to you anymore in a way that that was not necessarily the case in politics 20 years ago. I think there was a wider band of people who were, who were persuadable. And part of that is because of their own doing, right? Uh, you know, I mean, part of that is, like, I'm one of those people, right? Like, I don't know, like, had, had Nikki Haley not been complicit with Donald Trump for five years, I, like, had she just stayed as governor of South Carolina and minded her own business. And yeah, remember when, remember, remember when she was I'd the, be like, yes, I agree with you. Remember when she was the courageous person who removed the Confederate flag from, from the top of the Capitol in Columbia? She was, she had her, her brief moment of being semi-awesome. Paula, the hey, floor Paula. is yours. Okay, so um, my question is, if troops are still in Afghanistan by August 31st, does the Taliban stop negotiations? And if so, I mean, I can't imagine thinking if we have American citizens on the ground and Afghan allies that the worst is yet to come. Um, I think you kind of hinted at that earlier. Um, and my second question is, is what are your thoughts on specifically Biden on the moral perspective? and? the policy response, I mean, I'll say I've been like completely floored. I mean, I I mean, I listened to Ben Rhodes, who, who I would say is not a right winger, say that he thought Biden lacked empathy in his speech that he gave. And I've been hearing from people saying that he's completely gaslighting the Afghan allies that we had. I'm, I'm literally shocked. Yeah, okay, so two things, one, the best that we can hope for right now is that the Taliban is disciplined enough and smart enough to say, we've got this thing in the bag if we just sort of survive the next three weeks and like, let's not do anything to shake, shake the bear, you know, like to rattle the bear, right? And like, that's the best case scenario is that they, is that they have the discipline and the logic to not do anything crazy assuming there are people still there after August 31st, which I think, how are the, how could there not still be people there after August 31st, given how, how big of a food bar this is? Um, so uh, could the Taliban decide not to? Could it not be the freaking Taliban's decision? Like, it's it's still a group, a ragtag group of, you know, people and different, you know, from different parts of the country and militias. You know, all it takes is like three hotheads popping off. And, and, and like, we have a... Uh, Additionally, additionally dire um, international incident on our hands. So I, I, I think it probably does go past August thirty first, and and I don't, you know, I think predicting what the Taliban is going to do is fool's errand. Um, as far as what Ben Rhodes said about Biden, um, I, I just agree. I don't, this has been a long-standing thing for Biden. Um, so I, I don't know Joe Biden. I don't know if it's politics. I don't know if it's stubbornness. Um, I, I think he feels like he was right about pulling out of Afghanistan in 09 and Obama and the generals gas didn't, didn't, didn't listen to him. Um, and that he was not going to get pushed around by the generals again. And he probably was right in 2009. Right. I don't know. Like in retrospect, um, you know, uh, there's a good argument to be made that he was right and that we should, should have just, you know, cut, cut loose then. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's that, I don't know if it's his son, Bo, I, I don't know if it's, just being a stubborn old man, <laughs> like, but, it, it, but it's it's a weakness, and like for a guy that has been, is able to show empathy in a lot of settings, and that does one of his strengths, it's been kind of alarming. Um, just how, um, what is even the word? Uh, you know, 
uh, unemotion, uh, just neutral, unemotional, uncare, uncaring about the plight of what's happening out there. He's been in his statements so far. Yeah, I agree with that completely. The only thing I will say in Biden's defense on this is that he's been very consistent, actually. This is, and and in Trump's defense, actually, Trump has been very consistent in exactly the same direction on this. They are both people who have watched this for 20 years and said, I've had enough, I don't care about the consequences. And that's their position. Their vocabulary for it is very different from one another, but the instinct is very similar. I disagree with the instinct. Um, I disagree with the moral presentation of it in both of their cases. But I do think, I mean, it's, it's always a dangerous thing to credit Trump with sincerity or about anything. But I do think in Biden's case, it comes from a very sincere place of uh, we've, we've done enough here, let's get out. Um, and so that's on the Biden side. On the Taliban side, um, I know it's fashionable to, uh, to call them crazy people and all that. Um, I tend to think of terrorist groups and uh, in very coldly calculating political terms. Uh, this is a, a group that has played the last 20 years extremely brutally and extremely uh, well, actually. They've played a bad hand very, very well. And uh, over the last year since the Trump deal, they have allowed the U.S. a fair bit of latitude. They have not been attacking U.S. troops. They know that they cannot meet even small numbers of U.S. troops head-to-head -head in, in direct combat in a fashion that is not terrible for them. So they don't do it. Um, they attack U.S. troops when they do, and they haven't over the last year and a bit, only in ambush situations. There is no way they are going to attack thousands of U.S. troops at this, um, at a fortified uh, facility like like this airport. When the U.S. comes in, the first thing they do is fortify a facility like that. Well, Ben, uh, what about what about just like a couple Americans walking down the street in the wrong place in the wrong time? Uh, a couple American soldiers will not just be walking down the street. No, but, uh, but there, the, you you might have an ambush situation every now and, but there will not be a significant attack on. I don't think. I agree. I think, that, the, I think the Taliban is. But there are a lot of Americans there that aren't soldiers. A lot of look. There's ten thousand Americans, fifteen thousand Americans in Kabul. Any one of them can be attacked any time. I'm saying that the Taliban has shown itself very capable of giving U.S. forces a lot of latitude to get out, and they haven't attacked us on the way out. Uh, I expect that to continue as long as they see progress toward departure. They didn't balk when the May deadline disappeared, right? And I don't think they're going to go crazy over this because as, as, because this, as, as, as this. the saying in Pashto goes, uh, the Americans have the cool watches, but we have the time. Um, and that is the way the Taliban thinks about this. And they're right to think about it this way because Joe Biden's told them to. And um, so I, I, I think they are going to let a lot of people leave. I don't, you know, they don't need them there. They don't want them there. You don't need modern bureaucrats to run a medieval state. Um, and um, and I think we're going to get a lot of um, cool people like we did after the fall of Saigon. Um, and um, uh, we'll get an incredible refugee community with, uh, and we're going to get a lot of great restaurants. Alice, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so I just had a quick question following on the refugee discussion. Uh, I've noticed that the governor of Utah and Maryland, I think, so both Republicans, um, have made requests for um, uh, uh, refugee resettlement in their own states. And I'm wondering if how much um, governors can and are willing to kind of clear that space for Biden so that he can 
yeah. kind of give them what they want. Arizona has two, uh, Doug Ducey. Uh, just, just as a quick aside, the governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, is maybe the best Republican left in America, <laughs> um, uh, and but maybe by a wide margin, actually, too. Uh, he's a really decent man. And Larry uh, Hogan has Larry. been stand up as well. Larry Hogan has been good. Um, he's on He's on the way out. I mean, Spencer just got elected, so it's a little bit different. Um, Hogan's term limited, and so is Ducey's term limited. So, again, good for them. They've both been generally good, but uh, a little less on the line politically. Um, I, yeah, I, look, I, I think that to me, I, I'm just going to be honest on this. I, I, again, as somebody that's been a pretty, pretty big, you know, supporter of a lot of what Biden's done, um, like uh, he seems to be less interested in refugees than 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 some of these Republican governors. I, I think that he has in his head that it's a it's a it's a political it's a sticky political situation. Uh, you know whether he learned that from his past political career or looking at Merkel or whatever. Um, he seems to be just based on reporting personally hesitant, um, which I think is is the wrong policy. Um, and and I just don't know that that's true. I just. I, I don't know that there is, I think that as far as an influx that is politically potentially threatening, I think you should be much more concerned about the border than, than the Afghan situation. And I, and I hope that I, I hope that I'm wrong and that, that they um, take care of as many people as possible. I just want to say that uh, I, I guess it's about 15 years ago now, um, I'm going to keep names out of this. A friend of my uh, wife's uh, uh, and his family had to leave Syria under uh, very dire circumstances, came to the United States as asylees and stayed at our house for a number of weeks while they were getting settled. Uh, and uh, I found it one of the most uh, rewarding I, it wasn't a political thing at all. It was, you know, just these were people who had to evacuate Syria under under urgent circumstances. But um, housing asylees is one of the, uh, uh, I found it one of the most rewarding uh, political experiences of my life. And uh, I would cheerfully and eagerly do it again for any uh, Afghan asylees or refugees who uh, uh, needed temporary housing. Uh, I know that Lutheran Social Services and IRAP are doing a lot of work trying to resettle people. Um, but, you know, and I encourage people to, uh, you know, help out financially with those things. But, you know, people are going to need places to stay and they're going to need communities where they're actually wanted rather than uh, rather than uh, treated as uh, interlopers. Um, a lot of Vietnam uh, uh, refugees were uh, treated really badly when they came here and um, that reflected I think a lot of people's shame in the war. Uh, it also reflected uh, some other things like, uh, 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 you know, um, racism. Well, it was certainly that, but um, I, I think the the circumstances of a lot of boat people were themselves embarrassing, um, you know, and. Um, and so I would hope we would do better in this situation. Um, and um, uh, and I encourage people to get involved in refugee resettlement. There's there's going to be a lot of work to do. Thank you for those words, Ben. Um, yeah. So we're going to be switching gears a little bit with our next question. David, the floor is yours. Hi. I just wanted to know what you think the status of the recall election is, especially given that there are now polls showing the recall of the governor in California, given that there are polls that now show it's very close, and I don't know whether to believe any of those. Um, I'm in for JVL tomorrow again on the, on the Bulwark newsletter, and it's on this topic, so preview here for a little fun, everybody. I, um, uh, you guys get a first peek at my hot take on the California recall. Um, I, I think that there's reason to be nervous 
if you're a Democrat, about who turns out in a weird September pandemic recall the year after we got rid of Donald Trump. I mean, a lot of people checked out of politics and like, and, and I think that it's a wild card. That said, I, 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 my, I think the good money is still on, on Gavin. Um, if you look at the polls, what you see is likely voters, which is people who answer the poll saying, you know, I'm an eight, nine, 10 likely to, to vote, that they ask you to kind of rate yourself on how likely you are. People who say they're very likely to vote, it's about a 50-50 race with a slight edge for Gavin, 50-48, really, um, if you look at the polls, 48-46, I think was the, was the 538 average. Um, if you look at all voters, Gavin is killing, killing it. Uh, you know, he's up 15. Uh, one that the Berkeley poll I looked at had, I think, had yes on the recall at 36%, which is basically Trump's level here. I think Trump got 35%. Um, so I, I don't think we've seen like a big political sea change in California, or I think that there's some frustration with the Democratic leadership here on various things, but I, I don't think that there's like a massive blowback or any of that coming. I think if he loses, it would simply be based on the fact that there's high intensity, every single Republican in the state is gonna go vote to try to get rid of him, and there have gotta be enough Democrats uh, show up. Um, the good news for Gavin is that he's got a big gap, and he won by two point. Uh, nine million votes last time. So, um, so as long as there's even a decent turnout, I think it'll be fine. So, do you see that as fundamentally comforting? In that, okay, it's close among the likely voters. He's probably losing among the likeliest voters. But since some percentage of the non, <laughs> excuse me, since some percentage of the non-likely voters vote, it'll actually end up being pretty comfortable for him. Or do you see it as, hey? Uh, it's a close race if you look at the people who are actually likely to vote. Yeah. Look, I, I guess I would say it this way. If this was a real election year, I would have no worries about Gavin Newsom, even if the polling looked exactly how it did. Because you see this. Like, remember the Lindsey Graham polls that came out in 2020? It's like, he's tied with Jamie Harrison. And then it's like, but it's still South Carolina. Right? Like, it's sort of like the Beto thing in Texas. It was just a little too early. Like, the Beto polls are there, but there's just still too many Republicans in Texas. I would feel that way about this, where there would be some polls showing it close, but like in the end, it was going to revert to the mean. Uh, there's just a tiny little Jiminy Cricket in my head that's like, man, September 14th, eight months after an election, during a fourth wave pandemic in California when people can be surfing, uh, I, you know, maybe, maybe. I, 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 like I said, I think the good money's on Gavin, but, but it is a really wonky election and have you gotten your ballot yet i have gotten it and i I will i'm obviously not going to support a recall of gavin the thing that does scare right if it was kevin faulkner who was the mayor of san diego who played footsie with trump a little too much for my taste if he was going to win i i I kind of probably wouldn't care i'd still vote for gavin i think it's ridiculous to recall him um but uh but kevin faulkner is a decent person and would do a fine job larry elder is, a, is like a batshit insane talk radio host. I, it would be like Trump to California, which which would really suck. So that that is kind of the part that makes me feel a little nervous. And what, and just what, people in California should tell your friends in California what, to take the time to vote now on the recall. What do, what do you think the, the main issue driving the recall is? Is it just the pandemic issue? Is it just that or? I swear to God, it was started by a group of cranks who like we're going to recall him no matter what over like immigration and I forget what the other thing was that they hated. It was something not even in the news right now. And then the pandemic hit and it was driven, I think, a lot by upset over the rules. Right. And, you know, California is a country to itself. There are more Republicans in Los Angeles County than there are in like Idaho. I might, I might have that wrong. Somebody can fight, fact check me. But I mean, there's, it's something to that effect, right? The, the Los Angeles County is more Republicans than, than in a state. So, you know, uh, people did not like the Republicans here and people living in, out in rural communities. I drove through a lot of California during the pandemic. You know, you'd stop off the highway in these smaller towns. They did not like these rules, you know? And so I think that that, that, that you know, drove the Republican anger to such a degree that they got you know the signatures to get on the ballot etc cetera, etc cetera. but i you know i you, you hear from some people who want to say well this is a referendum on the homelessness and you know all this other stuff and, and it's like yeah i mean some people are upset with homelessness here some people are upset with housing prices but like 
you know, they don't want Larry Elder to be the governor. Uh, like what drove it was really the pandemic stuff. Do we have anybody else to bring in? No, I think uh, we need to wrap. We are yeah. going to leave it there. Tim Miller, you're a great American. You are. And American. even with shorter hair, um, and especially with shorter hair. Um, and, uh, you know, Hot Joe Summer, Hot Joe August has been deferred. It's now going to be Hot Joe November, which is cooling Joe. Um, but we're still excited about it. We're going to. We're going to kick the virus's ass, get everybody vaccinated, and then, Ron DeSantis, we are coming for you. Uh, <laughs> we will be back tomorrow. Scott, who's our guest tomorrow? I think it's Stephen Wertheim. If it's not Steve, if if he if he can't make it, it'll be cheese night. All right, so we're going to have Stephen Wertheim. We think who's going to make the alternative argument to Mark Polymeropoulos, who was upset at Joe for getting out of uh, Afghanistan. And Stephen Wertheim is going to reassure us that it is all peachy keen. And this is just uh, ending endless war. Uh, that'll be 22 hours and 54 minutes from now. And until then, Scott. Uh, we can't have fun anymore, but we can have cool Joe November. Yeah. Thank Better you guys. Everybody. Everyone Thank have you. a great night. Thank you very much.